So as a pastor, there are a number of things that I get to enjoy uh, in ministry. Um, I get to do weddings. I get to do fun stuff like that. Baptisms are actually one of my favorites, uh, though, as well. And um, so just wanted to congratulate you all and also give you um, this as a little gift. There's a certificate of baptism there and then also a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. And um, I would just encourage you every once in a while to actually pull out that certificate uh, as Aubrey gets older and just talk with her about the meaning of her baptism. Uh, I like to say that uh, baptism is sort of uh, like a, a certificate of our adoption into God's family. Um, you know, we are his children. We confess that from Scripture. And the way that the Apostle Paul talks about that is we've actually been adopted into his family. Because of our sin, none of us really start out as members of his family, but we're adopted into it as brothers and sisters in Christ and also as his children. And um, baptism is kind of the certificate of that. It's that adoption being made secure. And so I just encourage you as she gets older um, to, to pull it out every once in a while, talk with her about the importance of that. And congratulations again to all of you this morning like to have us open uh, in God's Word this morning in the Bible to Psalm 122, our text for this morning. We are uh, looking at the Psalms of Ascents in our current sermon series, and uh, we're a couple of them in now, and up to Psalm 122, and that's what we're going to be looking at together. So this is what the psalmist writes both to God's people back then, as well as to us as God's people today. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to worship the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, there's one question no parent ever wants to hear their kids ask. Are we there yet? Uh, those of you who have been on a lengthy road trip with young kids or a trip of any length with young kids, uh, for that matter, know that that's the last thing you want to hear them say. Are we there yet? Because after all, chances are if they're asking that question, that means that you're not there yet. Uh, in fact, you might still even have a, a little ways to go. But what that question also means is that the kids who are asking it are just about done with the journey. They're over it. They wish it was finished. And so if you do still have a ways to get where you're going and kids start asking that question, you're in for a long rest of the car ride. Fortunately for the psalmist, though, he actually gets to answer that question in the affirmative here. Yes, he says, we are. We are here. We've arrived. And that's because in the sequence of the Psalms of Ascent, this one, Psalm 122, serves as the song of arrival. The pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem have finally made it. The psalmist begins with these words, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. In other words, they're there. They've arrived. 
They've made it to their destination. Three times a year, the Jewish people would have made their way in mass to the city of Jerusalem for the religious festivals of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Um, from wherever they lived in Palestine, whether they were up north in kind of the region of Galilee, down south in more of the desert region, region of the Negev, or somewhere in between, they would have gone there to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship God at those festivals together as, as one group, one nation, one people before the presence of their Lord. And that worship was important for the Hebrew people. It was significant. It was momentous. That's because their worship was a reminder for them. It was a reminder really of, of three things. First, of who they were as a people. Second, of whose they were, who they belonged to, God. And then third, of everything that he had done for them throughout their history. In fact, that's what those three festivals that the Jewish people traveled to Jerusalem were all about. They were reminders of those three things. Who they were, whose they were, and what God had done for them. You see, Passover was a commemoration of one of the most important events in Israel's history. Somber at parts, joyful at others, it reminded the Israelites how God had chosen, spared, and rescued them from their slavery in Egypt, something that we actually looked at during our sermon series in the book of Exodus back in the spring. Pentecost, meanwhile, was an agricultural festival in the early summer. It was similar to our modern-day Thanksgiving in some ways. And what happened at that festival was that God's people would celebrate his ongoing goodness and provision for them. Year after year, the Jewish people had what they needed. They had the food that they needed, the shelter they needed. God had provided for them. And so at Pentecost, they looked to him in thanksgiving and gratitude for all the blessings that he had bestowed on them. And then finally, during the Feast of Tabernacles in the early fall, the Israelites were to move out of their houses and homes and instead live for a week in temporary shelters called tabernacles or booths. And the point was to remember God's faithfulness to them during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt. Think of it kind of like a glorified camping trip, only with religious significance woven into it. And for each one of those festivals, in spring and summer and fall, travel to Jerusalem was included. It wasn't enough to simply celebrate those festivals on your own. Instead, you had to do it with each other, together, in the presence of God, at the house of the Lord, in the holy city of Zion. That's how important the worship at those festivals was for the Jewish people. And in a similar way, worship is still important for us today. At a basic level, you know, we're actually not all that different from the people that the psalmist was originally writing to here, from the Israelites who lived so long ago. I mean, there's obviously a lot that's changed. The world is visibly, tangibly, obviously different than it was back then. But there's also much about us as human beings that's still the same. As the author of Ecclesiastes writes over and over in that book in the Old Testament, there's nothing new under the sun. And much of that not newness has to do with us as human beings. The sights and sounds of the world may change, but human nature remains remarkably the same. We progress in ideas, technology, and how we see ourselves, but the ways we regress throughout history are similar. We like to think ourselves so advanced, enlightened, and ahead of our time, but the simple truth is that time has actually changed us precious little. 
And so like our Israelite forebears, we need to worship too. We need the same things that it provided them back then. We need the same heart check it offered the ancient Israelites. We need the same gentle reminders that those festivals offered to them. We need to be reminded of the same sorts of things. Who we are as people, whose we are, and everything that he's done for us. After all, we live in what some have called a counterformative culture. A Christian philosopher and Calvin University professor James K.A. Smith has done really interesting work on this the last number of years. Uh, In a number of his more recent books, he's examined and explored how it is that we as human beings come to believe what we believe. And his conclusion is that it doesn't often happen the way that we think it does. You see, we like to think that we think our way to our beliefs. You know, when confronted with a decision of some sort, we like to imagine ourselves sitting down, uh, sort of weighing all the different options, thinking about it, and then coming to some sort of conclusion. When it comes to the things that we believe, the values that we hold, the ideas that we have in our minds, that's how we assume that we get there. We think that we think our way to them. But Smith isn't so sure. Instead, he thinks that we're formed a lot less by our thoughts and a lot more by something much deeper. He says that it's our desires that form and shape us, our passions, what we love that ultimately make us who we are. In fact, he even made that the title of one of his more recent books, You Are What You Love, he says. That's the title of it. And our culture gets this. The truth is, like any culture, our culture has a certain vision of the good life. This isn't unique to our culture. Every culture has this a version of life it wants to convince us of, a version of life it wants to conform us to, a certain set of values, a certain set of beliefs, a certain definition of success, a certain way that it wants us to live. But what's interesting to me is that our culture doesn't try to convince us of any of that stuff the way that we might think it does. Our culture doesn't try to instill its vision of the good life in us, you know, through well-reasoned, logical arguments. Instead, It tries to captivate us. It goes after our desires, our longings, what we love, and it hits us there. For instance, that's why beer companies sell beer with scantily clad women in their advertisements. Think about that for a second. What do those two things have to do with each other? Not much, right? And that's because beer companies aren't logically arguing that their beer is the best. If that was the case, no one would ever go near a Miller Lite. Instead, what the, I got claps on that? <laughs> this is CRC Church, folks. We, yeah. I lost my place now. <laughs> Instead, what those companies are trying to do, okay, they're not trying to reason or logic somebody into buying their product. What they're trying to do is they're trying to capture men's desires and their lust to be with a woman like that. Cosmetic companies do the same thing. Cosmetic companies don't sell their products by publishing all the ingredients that go into them, right? And trying to convince women that they're so well made and that's why they should buy their products. Instead, just like beer companies, they also sell their products with scantily clad women because they're trying to captivate women and make them believe that if they use their products, they might be able to be that kind of woman. And I could go on and on and on, right? I mean, the examples of this are endless. Just think of any advertisement that you've seen recently. 
Did it try to logic you into buying the product? Probably not. Every once in a while, companies will do that. Every once in a while, they'll publish a list of the specifications of the product and they'll tell you why it's the best. But most of the time, what companies instead try to do is sell you a lot less on the products they make themselves than the lifestyle they attach to it. The kind of person that you could become if you buy their products and use them. The good life, in other words. They're selling you the good life as they see it. They're working on our desires, our longings, what we love to shape and form us into the kind of people that they think we ought to be. Smith, in his book, has a term for that. He calls them cultural liturgies. He says they're all around us. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. But they do the same thing that liturgy is supposed to do in a church setting. That's what liturgy is supposed to accomplish, right? It's supposed to form us, shape us, condition us to act and react a certain way. It's spiritual muscle memory, if you will. This is why at the previous church that I served in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is a largely Catholic town, every time we had communion, there were some folks in our congregation who would come forward with their hands cupped like this. Now, the way that communion worked in the church that I served was we didn't take the piece of bread and put it in somebody's palm, so why the cupped hands? Well, because that's the way that you come forward for communion in the Catholic Church. And so if you've spent, you know, day after day, week after week, year after year in that kind of liturgy, you come forward, the priest takes the host, the wafer, the piece of bread, and they place it in your outstretched palm. If you've been formed and shaped so long, for decades sometimes, it becomes muscle memory. And so we had some members of our church who had been in our church for 5, 10, 15, sometimes 20 years or more. They hadn't been part of the Catholic church for decades. And yet whenever they came forward communion, for, for communion, they came forward with the cupped hands. Liturgy forms us. It shapes us. And our culture, says Smith, does that too. It has liturgies as well. It forms and shapes us in its own way. It wants to precondition us according to its beliefs and values. It wants to be the one that tells us who and whose we are and what should ultimately matter in our lives. And the truth is, not all of that is bad. I don't want to sound like the pastor who's just anti-everything, anti-the whole culture, because that's not the case, right? This is where discernment comes into play. There is much in our culture that is good and beautiful and of God, and those things should be celebrated and enjoyed. But there are also some things that aren't. Some things that actually run counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the long obedience of faith, some things that form us not after God's heart, but instead after the things of our own. And so that's why we need this, worship. Because we need to be reformed, reshaped, and renewed as God's people. We need to be reminded over and over, week after week, who we truly are, whose we are. We are God's and what he has done for us. And that's what worship accomplishes. It's a liturgy of formation, not after the things of the world, but after God. And it happens together. As the psalmist writes here, Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. 
Like we've already said, all of Israel was expected at those three festivals, those three religious festivals that were held in Jerusalem each year. Realistically, that probably never happened where everybody in the country went up to Jerusalem. Given the times of year these festivals were held, things like sowing, calving, and harvesting seasons had to be taken into account. As a mainly agricultural society, the Israelite calendar was dominated by a different set of rhythms and responsibilities than ours is today. And yet the image still remains, right? The image here is of all of Israel gathered together. From north and south, east and west, they would come, young and old, men and women, families and individuals, they would arrive at the city together. Those from different trades, backgrounds, and communities would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship their God side by side as one people, one nation, one congregation gathered there before him. As Eugene Peterson writes in his book on these Psalms, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, In worship, all the different tribes of Israel functioned as a single people in harmonious relationship, whatever their differences. And the same is true, actually, for us still in worship today. Peterson goes on, In worship, though we have come from different places and out of various conditions, we are demonstrably after the same things, saying the same things, doing the same things, With all our differing levels of intelligence and wealth, background and language, rivalries and resentments, still in worship, we are gathered into a single whole. Outer quarrels and misunderstandings and differences pale into insignificance as the inner unity of what God builds in the act of worship is demonstrated. This is why some people like to say that despite the old saying, water is actually thicker than blood. Have you heard that, that saying, blood is thicker than water? It's a medieval proverb meaning that familial bonds, the bonds that you have with your family, are stronger than any other kind of bond, stronger than friendship, stronger even than love with a significant other. And yet as Christians, we actually believe that there is a water that is stronger than blood, stronger than any other kind of bond. We actually saw it in action this morning. It's this water. This water is stronger than blood, than any other kind of bond we might have. It's the water of baptism. Everything else ought to pale in comparison to this. National and political allegiances, social status and stature, economic class and employment position, racial or ethnic heritage, gender and stage of life, they all find equal footing here in the sanctuary, in worship, the waters of baptism. This is why it's been said that Christians actually have more in common with uh, fellow believers in other countries than they do with the unbelieving neighbor who lives next door and with whom they talk all the time. Because that's the power of this bond. Worship unifies us, just like all the tribes of Israel coming together in one place, one city. Worship unifies us. The water of baptism unifies us. The table that we come to together, we just celebrated it last week. It's right there in the name, communion. It unifies us. And there should be nothing, nothing that should be able to break those bonds apart. Sadly, in recent years, though, that actually seems to be less the case. 
I don't know if you've felt this, but I certainly have um, as a pastor, but also just as a Christian. Basically, with the increasing secularization of our society, we've been witnessing what one Christian thinker calls the rise of the political religions. Put simply, he says, it used to be that people got their sense of meaning, transcendence, significance, value, and worth from this, from their worship together from their faith, from their belief in and relationship with God. But increasingly for many in a secularized culture, that's no longer the case. They've deconstructed their faith, they've abandoned it, walked away, or simply made it secondary to other things, other allegiances. But as pastor and cultural commentator Mark Sayers puts it, we human beings are meaning-making machines. We are meaning-making machines. We can't live without meaning and purpose and significance in our lives. We can't live a flat, transcendenceless existence. It doesn't work. And so if we don't find that in our faith anymore, we are bound to find it somewhere else. We're bound to find that meaning, significance, and value someplace else. And he says that for many people these days, even including many Christians, the place where they are now finding that is in their political loyalties. And for the church, what that means is that it's starting to splinter apart. People in different political factions no longer feel like they can fellowship together because their politics have become their ultimate source of self. Coming together with those they disagree with, even here in a church setting, is starting to seem more and more impossible. And so this water is supposed to be thicker than blood, but in our day and age, It seems like the flag is fast becoming thickest of all. And by the way, I'm sorry to keep harping on this. I feel like I've been taking pot shots at at sort of these political loyalty things the last number of sermons, or maybe you don't feel like it, but I feel like I have. It's because I'm, I'm genuinely worried about this. I'm genuinely worried that this is fast becoming our default idolatry in North America. I talked to a pastor um, just two weeks ago, 40 years. He's, He's retired now, but he was in the ministry for 40 years. And I said, I'm a young guy. I said, I've only been in ministry for about eight years. Am I crazy or is this, is this different than it used to be? Because maybe I'm just young and I don't remember. I said, but I, I've never seen the church start to splinter apart this way before. You know, I've heard of people leaving the church over politics, not this church, the church in general. And I asked him, has it always been like that or is this new? And he said, in 40 years of ministry, he'd never seen anything like this. People are reading everything in their lives through the lens of their politics, even including their faith. And it's affecting the church in incredibly deep ways. So I'm probably going to keep talking about it. Because we, as I got claps again. (laughs) Wow, twice in a Sunday. Because we as Christians are called to another way. We're called to another way of living, another way of existing, another way of fellowshipping with other human beings, another way of relating to God. We are called to unity. We are called to community. We are called to be one body in Christ and to find our identity in him over and above anything else, even including our politics. In short, we are called to be people of peace. People at peace with ourselves, people at peace with others, both in the church community and outside because of the peace that we have received from our God. And our worship ought to demonstrate that. 
And that's the note that the psalmist ends this psalm on. He ends it on a note of peace. He writes this, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. You know, that's actually the standard greeting in the Middle East. Uh, It's how people say hello. In Hebrew, it's shalom. In Arabic, it's salam. But the meaning is the same. Peace. Peace be with you. And that's what the psalmist is saying here when God's people come together in Jerusalem. From every corner of the land in all their vast array and all their diversity and variety, when they come there to Jerusalem to worship God with each other, it's a picture, a picture of the kind of peace and goodness flourishing in abundance, joy and rightness that God intended for us as human beings when he created us in the first place. To put it another way, worshiping God for the Jewish people, truly worshiping him, was meant to be a rewind of sorts to what things looked like before the fall into sin, the time before we splintered apart both from each other and from God. The time when we used to experience the kind of peace that God intended for his world. It's a flashback. Worship is a flashback to God's creation the way it's supposed to look. And the same is still true for us as Christians today, thousands of years later. The only difference, though, is that while our worship today does still, to some degree, point us back to what things would have been like before the fall, More than that, as Christians, our worship is intended to point people ahead to what it will look like actually when Christ returns to restore things all in all. The Israelites' worship was a flashback to God's creation as it was meant to be. Our worship is a flash forward to creation as it will be, renewed, redeemed, restored. That's what the Apostle John is talking about in chapter 7 of his apocalyptic, apocalyptic book, The Revelation. He writes this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what our worship anticipates and looks forward to and points ahead to. That's the kind of peace that our worship is meant to embody. It looks ahead to the day when God will recreate all things, restore his world, and fully redeem and renew us as his people, calling us into one body, one family in Christ, one joyful throng of worshipers who, despite whatever other differences we may have, can join together in praising and glorifying our God. And that brings us to the gospel. You see, like the psalmist the Jewish people, there was someone else who once arrived in Jerusalem. In contrast to the joy and celebration of this psalm, though, when he entered the city, he wept and mourned over it. He rode into that city humbly on the back of a donkey. His first stop was the temple, like all those worshipers who would have made their way to those religious festivals. But instead of worshiping there, he flipped tables and scattered the coins of the money changers. He actually seemed the furthest 
from someone who had come to that city with a piece of Jerusalem on his mind. And yet that's exactly what he came to bring. Peace for Jerusalem. Peace for Israel. Peace for the whole world, in fact. He came to bring the peace, the shalom, the goodness and restoration for God's creation that no one else could. His name was Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God, our Lord and Savior. And he's the reason why we find ourselves gathered together in worship still today. He's the whole reason it's possible. He is the one who has called us out of our sin into relationship with him. He is the one who reforms and reshapes us into the people that we were created to be. He's the one who unifies us as one body of his people. And he is the one who gives us his peace and makes it possible for us to live in it. Thanks be to him. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we come here to this place of worship each Sunday to be formed and shaped as your people. We need that reminder each and every week because we live in a world that has fallen and distorted and it distorts us as well. And so, God, we gather in this place to be reminded who we are, whose we are, and everything that you have done for us. Thank you for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ and the fact that we can come here to your house and worship you week after week. And it's in the name of our Lord and Savior who makes that possible, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.